Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. In this episode from the Institute's vault, we have an excerpt from a two-day symposium, Hannah Arendt Right Now, which explored the philosopher's impact on the 21st century. The 2006 event was held on the 100th anniversary of Arendt's birth. In this session, Azar Nafisi and Ladan Boramond talk about how Arendt's work on totalitarianism helped them understand the Islamic revolution in Iran, where both of them were born. Azar Nafisi is best known for her 2003 book, Reading Lolita in Tehran, a memoir in books. Ladan Bormand is a historian and human rights advocate. She is the author of several articles on the French Revolution, the Islamic Revolution of Iran, and the nature of Islamic terrorism. I'm here mainly because, and this is very emotional for me, the way I connected to her. I think that there are certain people in your life, both real and people whom you meet, maybe even more real, through books, who become intimate strangers. There are people who um, articulate uh, your most familiar and yet hidden and unknown feelings and emotions in a clearer way than you had ever thought. And you become into sudden epiphanies. And this is how I feel about Hannah Arendt. Uh, she's always that intimate stranger somewhere, somehow. And I think that Ken Ahn was saying uh, something similar. And, and, and this is not because you agree with these people. Uh, we so much base our relationships on our political agreements and disagreements, uh, and, and, and it has nothing to do with that at all. There is something structural here. Arendt herself was concerned not just with the content, but with the how, with, with the style, which makes her so poetic uh, in, in more ways than one. And, and it is that structural connection. That, that you make with people. Uh, the way you connect um, uh, to the vision and not to agreements and disagreements, which is what we have been reduced to in the kind of world that we live in. And I would like to come back to that, actually, to that reduction uh, from which we suffer. And that is why I think that we should have this con conversation continuously, at least a year of conversations on Hannah Arendt and not just this meeting or the meeting and, at, at, at new school. And that's why Samantha and I keep coming back to this need the necessity uh, for carrying on these conversations uh, very seriously. And the last thing that I wanted to say about that poetic vision, a man that I, I, I read somewhere that she didn't like, or maybe my friend Svetlana Boyne was telling me that she didn't like Nabokov. And I can imagine her not approving of him. And, and I can imagine him another eccentric, maybe not approving of her or thinking, I don't read politics. But, but, but he did, in many ways, I, I think connect to her. But one thing he used to tell his students was that you need the precision of a poet and the passion of a scientist. And I think that what I love about Arendt um, is that combination of the precision and, 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 and passion. That is what makes her so crucial to us. And that is what makes um, a man who was born uh, in, in Baghdad or a woman who was born in, in uh, Tehran so immediately connect to her. It is that poetic vision. So there are many things that I want to talk about, and, and I very much resent about the fact that I have to spend um, uh, some part of my talk on, on Iran. I want to talk about other things, and I constantly come back to it. Part of it is because of my own uh, 
connection <laughs> to Iran. As I mentioned in my book, I left Iran, but Iran never left me. But I want to go back to Iran also because I, I first got to know Arendt when I was a, a student in, in, in US uh, in, in, in the 70s. And, and I was so bloody cocksure and so sanctimonious, and I had everything that I needed to know. And when I read her, again, there was that connection to that poetic vision because she's so epiphanic. I mean, you read these things and you're shocked or you're startled and you knew them. It is like falling in love. This person, I knew him. I'm, have I met you somewhere before? <laughs> you know, that type of a thing. No, I haven't, but I have, you know. So that was there. But I don't think I understood her at all. I think I quoted her more than I understood her. And that is why I wrongly connected her to the regime of the Shah. And then later on, she does talk about autocracies and dictatorships and all these differentiations and the fact that totalitarianism is something completely different. And it is rather careless, again, in this careless age that we live, the way we bandy words around. And so that is how I felt, that I know her. But, but I, I really didn't know her. It took the Islamic Republic for, to which I I'm very thankful for so many things, but for this one as well, to make me uh, realize what, what, what she really meant. And, and, and then again, she does go into this whole idea of how her thought comes out of her pondering of the events, you know, and, and, and that was, again, uh, something that was imposed on me. So I'm going to be talking about Iran within that context, that when I went back to Iran, uh, my timing being rather bad, I'm always bad in that, I went back in 1979, two days after I finished my dissertation, fundamentalism, terror, and the war with Iraq, came back to United States 1997, fundamentalism, terror, and the war with Iraq. So, you know, uh, these three are in my fate. Uh, but anyway, when I went back to Iran, it took me a little while, but, but, but what, one thing that I realized was, um, was the irreal, and I don't mean unreal, I mean the irreal, um, uh, circumstances uh, which had been uh, imposed upon us. And I'm not going to go into everything. Aaron talks about how after the demise or, or the defeat or the failure of these totalitarian states, once this has been thought, it can happen again and again. And of course, it has happened again and again. And I hope that today, not just will we be talking about Iran and Iraq, but also about, um, and Darfur, actually, because I think Darfur is another example which we do need to talk because it's different from Iran and, and Iraq. These three differences need to, to come to our attention, and we need to talk about it. Uh, but also about, of course, China and, and, and North Korea. That is an evil state you know, we're talking about, and we don't know what the hell we're going to do about it. You know, we have no idea. So, so these are the things that we need to talk about. But coming back to Iran, Iran was um, uh, the, the originator of this idea of modern fundamentalism. And, 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 and as Ladan will be telling you much better than I will, uh, it is a modern issue, what, what we're talking about. It is not fundamentalism that, that these guys are, are, are dealing with. It does not go back necessarily to the traditions. Uh, um, of, of Islam, but Iran has become in many ways the Soviet Union of the so-called Muslim world a term that I very much object to, uh, to reduce uh, all these different cultures uh, into one component, which is religion, and then to reduce that religion into one component, which is um, um, fundamentalism, is, is really sacrilege. And it is what you, uh, uh, um, 
Elizabeth talks about when she brings out the idea that Arendt was talking about in a society like this, where you market an image. You create an image which is essentially wrong, like what they did with her idea of Eichmann. Uh, and then you market that false fabrication to the world as truth, and then you, you create stories around it. Well, this is what happened uh, with, with the Islamic Republic. Uh, the idea that this came from Islam, that this came from culture, that this came from tradition was in itself a fabrication. And I'd like to go a little bit into that and come back to why Arendt became important. Now, one thing about, I think, that totalitarian states do in this idea that Arendt so well talks about in Origins of Totalitarianism, in this whole issue of reshaping, wanting to change human nature. The first thing that they do, or at least in Iran, the first thing that was done was confiscation of the past. Because in order to justify the present, you, you have to say that the past existed the way we wanted it to, uh, so that this present, what we're doing, is legitimate. And, and, and therefore, all of a sudden, we became homogeneously uh, Islamic. Now, now, think of Iran, and, and I'm t talking about it right now very superficially. Think of Iran's past, at least 2,500, 3,000 years of history, you know, half of which was not Islamic. Um, you go to Mitraism, you go to Zoroastrianism. When you go to the Smithsonian and you look at Iranian artifacts, they're far more like Roman and, 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 and Greek. You have the Feast of Dionysus on the cups and on the ears. A country that is proud of have, having been the originator of wine. You know that its Islamic Sufi poets are constantly talking about wine and talking about hypocritical clerics who flog people in public and drink wine in private. The country of Omar Khayyam, an atheist and a scientist and a poet who celebrates wine and the beloved, be it men or women. You know, a country like that now is reduced to aspect of it, which is Islam, but that Islam again is being reduced to something that didn't exist. This is not the Islam that my grandmother, who always wore the veil, practiced. You know, so that past needs to, to be gone. All of a sudden, your heritage, who you were, your identity is taken away from you. Then you're prepared to accept this present. And then, of course, everything that they did is everything that Hannah Arendt says. You know, the three things that she talks about totalitarianism, ideology which is the use of religion as an ideology. This is what happened to Islam. It was used or abused. It was confiscated, and that confiscation led not only to confiscation of the rights of uh, uh, Jews and Christians and atheists and Zoroastrians and Baha'is, but also the rights of Muslims to define themselves the way they, they felt. And the issue of the veil, which became the most transparent issue around that, was never about uh, whether veil is good or bad, although that debate has been now confiscated as well, not just in a country like Iran or Saudi Arabia, but, but in a country like the United States as well. We do not really debate about the veil. Some of us don't like it because those people wear it, you know, and it's a sign of backwardness. Some of us like it because those people wear it. Both the extreme left and the right, whom John Stewart says, have um, confiscated the debate. Both these two extremes do not allow us any debate. But the issue of the veil was basically an issue of choice. 
that no state has the right to tell a people how they should be dressed or how they should address or not address their God. Now, the whole issue of this reshaping of present then comes out of, again, the idea that Alan talks about in totalitarianism of imposing a uniformity. Everybody in this room knows Ninuchka the way that her underwear undermined the state, uh, you remember. This, the whole issue of the veil of Islam, of culture, goes under that Ninuchka rule, that you create a uniformity. If you came to Iran uh, before the revolution, you would notice women, uh, many women who, who dress the way we do, but those who even wore the veil wore it in such colorful and different ways, that there was no one way of wearing the veil. And what we do now have as official uniform didn't exist. This raincoat thing with, with another thing on top. Anyway, so the whole idea was to target everything that is pluralistic, that is individual, that is multivocal, to take away that color, to take away that essence of, of plurality away. And the main targets become women, minorities, the culture, and, and this is where the idea of thought comes. And this is when Hannah Arendt came to me. So many other books. And you know, books in Iran, they had banned the books. The, the foreign bookstores were being closed down one by one officially. And friends abroad, including my own brother who left in mid-80s, they would send me books or send me copies of New Yorker or, or New York Review of books. And you know, it was very much like Soviet Union. And we would all you know, look at our copies and start reading it. And Elizabeth's book came to me, the biography came to me through my, my wonderful, amazing brother. And it was, you know, meeting this magical friend, you know, under the blanket I would keep them. And, and, and rereading her and thinking, I've said this before as if I had predicted her, and not that she had predicted us. And this is how it is with Canaan. I, I, I would like to open a parenthesis. I wish Canaan was here. Everything he agreed on the war, I disagree with. I, I disagreed with the war in Iraq from the day one, even before the war started. But I so much, so much empathize with him. I empathize with Canaan and understand him far more than I empathize with some people who were also anti-war. Because again, it is not about political positions. It is about that vision, that humanity, that humaneness, which, which also makes uh, mistakes and then has to come out and talk about them. So to make a very long story short, what was evil about that empire? The, because they did think of a Persian empire, uh, of an Islamic empire. Was this confiscation of individuality and of one's reality to the point that you became irreal? You had no past. The present was imposed on you. She loved um, Isaac Denison, and I love her Men in Dark Times. And, and, and the three stories she brings from Denison are all about the imposition of, of your fiction upon life. This very wealthy man who was thinking of Weimar and Goethe and hires this young poet to become a poet, a great poet, and then has to create tragic circumstances for him in order for him to act the same. And the poet in the end kills him and, and, and the woman that uh, he marries in order for him to fall in love so that their love wouldn't work. Very much like Lolita, at the heart of fiction, greatest works of fiction, the greatest crime is blindness is not seeing the other, is imposing your vision upon someone else. And this is what these people did. 
they imposed. They wanted to reshape us according to the, to, to the image that they had. And in doing that, the worst thing that they do is the feeling that you get that you are complicit that you become part of the crime that is created against you, you become a lie. The women who did not like to wear the veil and who would wear it, and everybody knew that they did not like to wear it. The prosecutors knew that we didn't believe in it, but they forced us to do it. So we became lies. We knew that we lied, and they knew that we lied. And so there was no shred of dignity left because of that, that imposition on us. On the other hand, those women who always wore the veil, like my grandmother, also lost their dignity because now the veil was a symbol of the state and never again the symbol of the religion. This is what the women who are wearing the veil today for political purposes, which Foucault, by the way, very much praised, should be thinking about, that to turn a symbol of religion into a symbol of state is one of the biggest crimes that you can commit against your own religion. So that shallowness of evil that she talks about, that banality of evil, which also Primo Levi in Todorov talks about, he says that it wasn't just the monsters. The monsters exist, but they're few. It was the ordinary. It is horrible to think how normal evil can be. And I'm not talking about their killing of, of women who were Marxists or opposed to the regime and who were virgins. You know that in the Islamic Republic, you cannot kill virgins because they go to heaven. So before killing them, they would rape them. The revolutionary guards would rape them so that they would not go to heaven. And then the person who raped the woman who had killed would go to their parents' home and say, I am your bridegroom, and this is your daughter's clothes. So that kind of evil, which happened very organized way and not randomly, I'm not just talking about, it is the evil of turning every single citizen into a liar, making us complicit in the crimes. That is what will always stain you, and you will never, ever be the same again. So that I can understand. One thing that I think she didn't pay attention to when she was talking about Eichmann and the way she was shocked when she sees Eichmann and she says, he's completely normal, <laughs> you know, he's just a functionary, is the seduction of evil, which comes through the leaders. That charisma, which Hitler and Stalin and Khomeini had, and which Humbert Humbert has. That seduction, without it, those functionaries would not work. And that is why Nabokov calls the readers ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Because each one of us is that lady and gentleman, and each of us can fall for that seduction, and that is what we fall for time and time again. That is what the intellectuals fell for, not just during the Nazi crimes, but also especially during the Stalinist crimes. This is what the intellectuals in this country are falling for today as we speak. I want to say a few words about that. I love her idea about isolation and solitude. That is how we felt, how evil isolates you so that you cannot just carry on a conversation with others, but you cannot carry on a conversation which is so essential to her errand to your, with yourself. You're caught with yourself. And that is why people like us living in those countries under those circumstances need the conversation of the others. And people here have accused me of talking about Western literature of 
supporting Bush. Somehow, President Bush not only has done all sorts of things, but he has also now become the guardian of uh, Fitzgerald and Nabokov, apparently, you know, promoting them. Talking about Western literature implicates you because you're a woman coming from a Muslim society. Now, this is exactly what we did not need, because these were the golden ambassadors of that world from which we were deprived. And these were the means of conversation, and these were the means of discovery. And literature is never segregationist. Literature is always about the other. And this is what I love about Arendt and what she talks about Kant, the cosmopolitanism. The idea that human rights and, and imagination are that third space where each of us meet and where at the door they don't ask you, are you a Republican or a Democrat, before you come in. When you go and see a Shakespeare play, when you go to even Borders or Olson's, they don't ask you for your credit card in terms of your political positions before you go in. Okay, so that was the whole point. I want to mention two points and then shut up. The first point is the process of change in Iran. Unlike Iraq, which Kanon talked about, and I like to come back to Iraq during our discussions because I think that it, we really need to discuss that much more uh, than we did. Um, unlike Iraq, um, Iran uh, was, these people could never become totally totalitarian, not because they didn't have the aspirations, but first of all, because the totalitarian failure, especially of Soviet Union, from which they had borrowed so much, you know, Soviet Union's failure helped in not allowing them to become cohesive. Many of the former revolutionaries, when they lost that Mecca, they turned towards lib liberal Western to uh, uh, thought, which was Karl Popper and Hannah Arendt mainly, actually. They began with Kant, Spinoza, and, and Hannah Arendt and, and, and Karl Popper. But that was one reason they couldn't become totalitarian. Another one is, thank God, the inefficiency of our, our religious um, hierarchy and the inefficiency and the Italianesque components of Iranian society, which subverts authority, which on the surface you know, says yes to it, and at heart just goes against it, sometimes it's very bad because you forget who you are. And Milosh in The Captive Mind has a chapter where he takes, borrows from Iranian term, Ketman, negating yourself. He says that is how the communist mind is formed by, by that issue of Ketman. But anyway, they couldn't do that completely. But the arbitrary nature of the society, the terror, which is not in a concentration camp, which we never had, but the terror which is organized enough that it does not allow you to communicate amongst yourselves, not with the outside world, but amongst yourselves to have a debate. All of these have taken their toes. But Iran is a very vital and vibrant society at the same time. And to, to make a long story short, Iran is the only country in the region which has gone through a totalitarian experience and where it has come out self-criticizing itself. The former revolutionaries, people like Akbar Ganji, for example, who is the best example, there are many others that Laran would supply with, they started quoting Khomeini, they are now quoting Hannah Arendt. After the war with Iraq and its failure and after the death of Khomeini, they started rethinking. So Iran is a self-critical and vibrant society. And the second thing about Iran is that Iranian people have learned that political at some point becomes existential. People like me resisted the regime not because we have political ambitions, which I don't at all have, but because of the fact that if you wanted to be a woman or an academic or a writer, or a human being, the way you would respect yourself, then you had to oppose what was being imposed on you. 
It, was, it is an existential resistance, which Ted Koppel doesn't understand, obviously. And nowadays, our pundits on Iran are Ted Koppel and the CNN and the Fox News. We don't have real serious debates. And all the think tanks that you know are Ted Koppelish themselves. So the whole point about Iran is that those targets resist by wearing their weapons of mass destruction, which is their makeup and their strands of hair, and listening to music, and reading Hannah Arendt, and going on the blogs, and getting 14 years for it, and coming into the streets, and doing the same thing. So there is a vibrant civil society there. And what we have learned is that you do not go, as you mentioned before, you don't go where your enemy goes. You do not use their language. We learned that from Shahrazad thousands of years ago, that you choose the domain that they cannot speak. And that is the domain of imagination and domain of thought. And what Hannah Arendt talks about, she says neither violence nor nonviolence work. What she has hope for is the limitless inventiveness of human beings. It is that inventiveness that you appeal to. So that is what is happening. I, I mentioned that we are the ones who predict Hannah Arendt. I, and I meant it in a serious way. It is not just that we get these books from the other countries and we read them and we get excited and we try to apply them. This is an exchange. It comes back. So it would be a man like Hannah or a woman like Roya, who would remind you of, of what Saul Bellow was talking about as atrophy of feeling in this society. He talks about the, our sleeping consciousness. He says that what is wrong with the West is its sleeping consciousness. Bellow. And he talks about the fact that his characters in the Bella Rosa connection survived the ordeal of the Holocaust. Will they survive the ordeal of freedom? This is what we're dealing with today in this country. Arendt spent a lot of time talking about what you call consumer culture, the thoughtlessness, the marketing, the image making of this society, and, 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 and how it can harm and damage not just this society, but everywhere that it goes to. This is what we're dealing with. I wish that I could talk, rather than what I said now, about the state of academia in this country. I wish I could talk about that totalitarian mindset that has forgotten about thought, that, that thinks that, whether on the left or the right, that thinks that just taking a position is enough. And thanks to Mr. Bush, we're doing it fine. When 9-11 happened, what worried me was not that bin Laden was evil. I knew he was evil. I had no doubt about it. What I was worried about is that we do not know that we're not all that good. It is not that we should not um, uh, demand that uh, evil should be called evil and, and evil should be struggled against, but that we are not sanctimonious. We cannot make evil make us complacent. The government made the mistake of becoming sanctimonious. The government made the mistake of choosing violence to respond with violence. What about the rest of us? Are we going to become complacent because we disagree with Bush? That is what I see. Every time we say we did this in Iraq, we don't really mean we did it. We mean Bush did it. What about the rest of us? What were we doing? That is the question that I want to bring to us. 
this government, not just this administration, and, and I really dislike Mr. Baker's ideas very much, all of these people, when they come to human rights, when they come to other countries, they use them as instruments. They're a piece of real estate to them. Afghani women become important one day, they're forgotten the next. What about those who were against the war in Iraq? How many times did they go into the streets because Saddam was cutting the tongues of people who were his enemies? How many times did people in this country go into the streets because they were killing women in concentration camps in Taliban? Have we ever thought about Saudi Arabia? And how dare we say that it's their culture? How dare we say that marriage at the age of nine, stoning women to death, polygamy, is sacred, we cannot talk about it because it is their culture. If that is your culture, burning witches in Salem, and slavery, and inquisition, and Nazism, and Stalinism is your culture, and not William Faulkner, and Zora Neale Hurston, and St. Augustine, and St. Thomas Aquinas, and Kant, and Spinoza, and Hannah Arendt. So this is what I worry about. Not Mr. Bush, not Mr. Ahmadinejad, but that because we are anti-Mr. Bush, we like Mr. Ahmadinejad. We say at least he stands up to American uh, imperialism. Shame on us. Shame on us to say that we like someone like Ahmadinejad because he fights Bush. That we like someone like Chavez because he likes Bush. I mean, this is a problem of the American progressives. If they don't have a program, if they don't rethink human rights, if they don't know what they're going to be doing, then they deserve what they get, whether it's from their own government or from others. So to end with it, I wanted to come to what we did in Iran. I wanted to come to, uh, where are you? Um, I need this now. To Ladan's chagrin, I'm going to end it with what Ladan and Roya Buruman did. This is the answer to the Islamic Republic. They created a website. It's called Omid, which means hope. It is a virtual city in which all the victims of the Islamic Republic, no matter from where they come, no matter what political positions they have, they all are gathered against the forgetfulness and oblivion of totalitarianism. As Todorov says, only total oblivion calls for total despair. They created a city. This is one of the most poetic visions. And if you look at the people who were killed, a practicing doctor, he was arrested shortly after revolution. A nurse in Iranian Kurdistan, she encouraged two French journalists to report on the butchery. A young girl in Tehran arrested for swimming in her home pool in a bathing suit. These were all the people who were executed alongside of people who were former revolutionaries who are now added to, to, to this website. This is how you subvert and change and, and, and create a different universe which negates totalitarianism. This is radical change. Without the help, without the acknowledgement of people from other parts of the world that these people existed that these people exist in our collective memory, then we have never existed. And Arendt, by the way, said that if 
we do not tell stories, it is as if we have never existed before. So it is through telling their stories and remembering those stories that we resuscitate ourselves and we survive, as Jonathan, you were saying, how would the world survive after we are gone? When uh, Azar uh, suggested that I attend this um, conversation, I thought, why me? I'm not an expert of Anna Arendt. And she said, that's exactly why. Usually I hate talking in public and I over-prepare my work and I agonize over it for months and months. But this is a conversation. And um, I don't think I do deserve, but the love of Anna Arendt is uh, the cause of my presence here. Canon uh, talked about how what brings us around the world, those who have experienced totalitarianism to Arendt, is that in a moment of helplessness, she speaks for us and articulates our experience so much so that it's kind of a, a light she brings and helps us to understand what we are going through and therefore we can react to it. And Ozar, you were talking about your anger against thoughtlessness in the West I didn't let you talk about how Arendt had helped you find the meaning of what you were going through in Iran. And this is exactly what also happened to me and I guess to many other Iranians. I didn't have the same background as Azar and Kanon. I came from a liberal family. I was never a communist because I was raised with the love of liberty. And I went to France in, when I was 18 in quest of understanding liberty and nation. These were the two elements in which I was brought up. My father was an exile in Iran already, and um, the revolution was all the hope we had for a change for liberty and uh, uh, a better future. And when I went back to Iran, the first months of the Iranian revolution, it was clear that this was a totalitarian uh, revolution. And I think we are going to talk about totalitarian nature of the Islamic Republic. It was as if my whole world was destroyed. I came back to Paris. I was in a state of shock and desperation. Then came the great terror in Iran when people were arrested. Hundreds of people were executed every night. And in Paris, everything was so beautiful and ordinary. And the bus driver was smiling at me. And it was a kind of disconnection between these two experiences, my daily experience, that made me totally helpless. So we started to report on all these crimes, thinking that by reporting them, by bringing them to the, the public around the world, we could stop it. And, and we couldn't stop it. And the list were coming out. And those who were killed slowly from unknown, from officials of the Ancien Regime, became closer, closer, and the friends we didn't want. And this experience became so intimate that at some point when a friend was killed, I, I was thinking, where am I at this moment when they take him? What are we doing? I was sure that the number of people in the world who was against this was way greater than the number of people who were doing it. And my question was, why this simple mathematical equation is so inefficient and nothing happens and these people are killed? In this state of helplessness and speechlessness, in a way, something happens to you that there is nothing left uh, but love and the quest of intelligibility. And these two elements were exactly what I felt while uh, listening to this interview of um, Arendt. She wanted to understand. 
And this is exactly where we all get in a very special relationship with this woman. And she becomes our mentor in a way and teaches us a lot, not only because she, as a historian, as a mentor, as a professor, she teaches us how to drag out the meaning and the essence of this nonsense, because it is a nonsense. And we tend to dismiss it and scoff at it and as a crime of a bunch of crazy people. And he tells us, no, there is meaning in it. Catch it. Because the only way for you to recapture your dignity is to understand it. And when you understand it, you will control it. And it's so true. And this brings me exactly to what you were saying, the debate about is Islamism a totalitarianism? Because it has both many elements of it, and then it doesn't fit uh, into what you think about uh, totalitarianism. One of the things that she mentions as very special characteristic of totalitarianism is concentration camps. And Iran doesn't have concentration camps. But other things that she mentions, and that Azar has been through the 80s, the experience, is that they try to impose upon you an identity that is not yours. They try to deny the plurality of individual existence. This they do, and they have done it. So I would like to dwell on this matter for uh, a little bit more, because Azar has so beautifully indicted the West, the liberal West, where the spaces of thoughtlessness is still prevailing, and especially in academia. And I think this is a very important uh, discussion. But what I will do is just to see and to think in a conversation if Iran, if the Islamic Republic, is a totalitarian regime, because that will then help us better understand. There is the absence of the concentration camp. And the, now that we are watching Iran, the regime is 30 years old. When we couldn't see Iran, it was between 79 and 89. And these were the time Azar was there. And she lived through this denial of individuality and all the oppressive character of the regime. Although Iran at that time never had concentration camp, this, the, the carceral system or penitentiary in Iran was a very weird place. It was a kind of concentration camp with no forced labor. But this is because precisely Arendt taught us that there is no utilitarian uh, function for concentration camps. It's only a microcosm where they will allow their ideology in its purest character to be implemented because uh, the ability of the reality to challenge this ideolo ideology is, uh, is zero. It's small, it's controlled, it's closed, and it's these holes of oblivion where they can realize and implement their ideology. And that is what happened in the Islamic Republic in the prison. Azar mentioned the rape of the young girls. There is a meaning behind this. Well, she mentioned clearly that they, they were raping them because they didn't want them to go to heaven, what does this say to me, us? And when I think of it in Arendtian terms, try to drag out, it's that they confiscate uh, the prerogative of God. They want to impose on God his judgment. <laughs> so in a way, they are confiscating God's sovereignty by imposing on God the way he should judge 
these girls in the other world. But there is more to this. When we, we read the mem memoirs of the prisoners in Iran, there were spaces in the prison, the section they called it the resurrection section. And the resurrection section, where the, there were coffins, or a form of coffins, and prisoners who were already judged and had prison terms, they would be uh, sent in a debate or when they had to see their persecutioners, most of the time the debate was ideological and they would try to convince these prisoners that their ideology is right and these people are sinners and they should repent and they should confess, which many of them did and some of them didn't. And they were telling them that you should now reenact the moment of resurrection and think what is the resurrection is. And in that way, they would again confiscate God's authority and prerogative. Aaron talks about the killing of the people in the oblivion, keeping them uh, closed and at some point killing them, and uh, then not even telling they were killed as if they had never existed. And this is also exactly what they did in 1989. Prisoners who had done nothing because they were not executed in the early 80s, because only of uh, crime of opinion, they were condemned to to few years in imprisonment and were supposed to be released in 88, 87, 89. They created a commission of three men and they would go to these people and ask them if they would repent and they would believe in Khomeini and they would kill for Khomeini and they would go to war for Khomeini. But they wouldn't tell them why this inquiry w was, and then if the response was no, they would kill them, they wouldn't inform anybody, they never recognized and acknowledged prison massacres, they killed several thousand people in a matter of eight months to one year, they didn't tell their family, and when they told them secretly, they told them they have no right for grief. So this is also, in Arendtian term, one of the main characteristics of a totalitarian regime, and it's very untraditional. And Ozar mentioned that what they do is they confiscate our history, and they replaced it with a fiction that is not true. This is a very interesting case because when they instituted the revolutionary committees, Khomeini's regime, they clearly mentioned that they were established in order to teach Iranian people about uh, their tradition. So this was a very odd type of tradition that had to be taught by an institution that we had inherited from the French terror because they used exactly the same word, comité, in Farsi, and revolutionary comité. And neither revolution nor comité had any precedent in our religion, of course. And again, she said, uh, Azar said that they, they were denying plurality, and the most important place where they denied plurality is in the religious seminaries. Major ayatollah were defrocked. The religious debate is totally blocked. There is no freedom of religion. And the, an institution that is was 700 years old is totally dismantled. You had this central committee of Friday prayer that were established in a very Leninist tradition. And the Friday prayer sermons were dictated from the center and you had political commissaire, all the institutions and elements that were used in communist uh, system were used and implemented. Now, 
Iran's the way we, we look at it right now doesn't seem totalitarian and it is not. But Russia after Khrushchev was not either totalitarian. But in honor of Arendt, I would like to say when she debate with Vogelin, uh, about her methodology. What she taught us, in a way, is the existential question that is dragging you throughout. In the, it's a matter of life and death. And she said she would die. It's uh, either die or have uh, uh, be a philosopher. But this uh, um, existential question shapes the way you shape the object you study. The, the way you question yeah. history out of your experience is the way you are searching for understanding. And if the, the question is real, you will not be afraid of, you know, getting out of the disciplinary uh, world and do exactly something totally new and different the way she did. And she says, I want to understand because I want to destroy totalitarianism. And one of the reasons perhaps Iran cannot be a totalitarianism is because Arendt understood totalitarianism. And the way she extracted the essence and showed, put it in light, I don't think we can have totalitarianism because the world doesn't permit, and we know what it is, uh, the unspeakable essence of it. So it can never become totally uh, totalitarianism. May I mention just one thing Laudan just said? Because of the despair I see, in the US, uh, the paralysis and despair about the situation. Um, Lada and I were talking, do you remember when we were talking about Abu Ghraib? Yes. Yeah. We were talking about Abu Ghraib, and, and, and of course, Abu Ghraib has two lessons. I think Abu Ghraib talks both of despair and hope at the same time, and I mentioned why. Despair is uh, for Americans to understand that we are all capable of this. There is no one who is not capable of the worst. And, and Arendt talks about the fact that what keeps us from doing certain things is the system. If you allow people to think the unthinkable, they will commit the unthinkable. And, and, and I think that we need to remember it and we need to probe it and we need to go beyond the probes that is going on right now. But the hope, which Laudan and I were talking about, is the fact that so many atrocities have been committed in the West. For example, I was asking her about Algeria what the French did in Algeria, okay? And it wasn't talked about. People did not feel ashamed of it in those countries. It was not as sensitive as it is now, where a people of a country feel so ashamed of an incident that relates to them. I mean, I think Americans should feel hopeful because of the way they, they reacted to Abu Ghraib. Because I, I think this is an important point to make, that this would not have been possible maybe 50 years ago for people to act as this, for Congress to come in, for there to be a probe, you know, to, to make people feel accountable and, and, and responsible. You know. We had this conversation within a framework of a more general uh, conversation of uh, Arendt's doubts about human rights, which is extremely unsettling for someone who loves Arendt so much. Arendt had perhaps out of her own experience of statelessness and in the world where nation states were the only political morphology or uh, form that existed uh, on the international realm, um, thought of, uh, espoused the Birkin 
critique of human rights in the French uh, Revolution that when you have only naked man, the homo or anthropos, this man is totally uh, helpless and could be slaughtered. And human rights is useless. Nation states are the only way that could uh, protect uh, the rights of the citizen. We should think of citizen. And Burke was right when uh, he said that destroying all the rights from tradition and um, culture is uh, putting a human being at danger. I worked on the French Revolution precisely on the, the tension between the rights of the nation and the rights of individual. And I think Arendt's knowledge of the French Revolution perhaps is not complete. And I wish uh, she was still alive and I could debate this with her. The, but what we were talking is that at, at the time of Arendt died, the ICCPR, the um, civil and political rights, was not even, I think, drafted. So uh, she couldn't see the potential of and the institutional potential of human rights. What we were talking exactly is that something because of these human rights has changed in the Western world that does not allow things like Abu Ghraib or Guantanamo Bay pass like this. We were thinking that what happened to the United States, if that was 50 years ago, perhaps these dark points would pass totally unnoticed and even legitimate. But now, in spite of this, something is wrong. And this is because this culture of human rights that has developed around uh, the world and in the Western world, it took more than 1,000 years for it to be constituted. And now we are at the moment of the mutation of the Western uh, political culture. And these elements, very small, this uh, miserable human rights declaration that we put at the United Nations with no force, just as an ethical reminder, has slowly, during these 50 years, created small institutions, NGOs like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, that are creating this space where this naked man is finding a refuge. In in one of her last speeches, when she was given the, the prize yeah, by the Danish, the, 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 she talks about the persona, the mask, and the individual that cannot be determined, and this duality. I was thinking of uh, the Human Rights Declaration as this space in human jurisprudence where this naked man is saved, and actually, it's not where this human being is totally without protection, but this is a protection that maybe one day in 150 years, more st stronger institution will really seriously protect the man. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.